You're listening to the Table Church Sermon Podcast. We're in a series right now called World Upside Down, where we're looking at the book of Acts. 2,000 years ago, a movement began that completely changed our world. It started with a small, unremarkable group of people who had a remarkable message that Jesus is Lord of the entire world. So join us as we study the book of Acts and discover the message that turned the world upside down. And if you need anything at all, be sure to reach out to us at hello at tablechurchdsm.org, or you can check out our website, tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. My name's Ivy Sprague, and I'll be sharing this morning's scripture, which comes from Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But the other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. I need to ask you all a question this morning. I need to hear your answer. Do you trust me? Okay. It's like the scene in Aladdin. Do you trust me? Okay, good. Because we're going to talk about politics today. Do you still trust me? (laughs) Oh, goodness. Pray for me, please. In verse 6 of our passage today, A mob accuses Paul and his friends of something very serious. And our translation says this. It says that they have, quote, caused trouble all over the world. Now, other translations put it more strongly. In fact, the RSV says it like this, verse 6. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the name of this series this summer on Acts is World Upside Down. That's what we're calling it. And so it's all been kind of leading to this. Um, Listen, the seriousness of this charge is explained in the next verse. It says, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. And so they're, in their minds, turning the world upside down. I mean, this is something, they said that they've been causing trouble over the whole world. These Christians have been doing something that in their view is totally messing things up and they need to be stopped. What are they doing? Well, they're defying Caesar's decrees. They're saying there's another king, another king other than Caesar, one called Jesus. And so these accusations against these charges against Paul and his friends, listen, they're not these vague complaints, are they? They're, they're not just kind of ambiguous. They have, they're specific and they are severe. 
they are accusing them of something very serious. They have defied Caesar's laws and they have turned the world upside down. Now the question I want us to ask this morning is this, is it true? Did the Christians really do that? Were they really breaking Roman law? Were they really defying the decrees of Caesar? Are they really guilty of treason? And are they in danger the way that these people seem to think that they are? Are they a danger the way that these people seem to think that they are? Or are these like trumped up charges to try to get people put away that are annoying you? Are they making stuff up in order to make the Christians look bad so that they'd go away? Which is it? A number of scholars believe that when the mob says they are defying Caesar's decrees, they are simply being accurate. That the mob was actually right. They are, defi- they are breaking Roman law by, def- that by declaring that there is a king named Jesus. So, listen, I want to investigate this a little bit. What is ha- something important is happening in Thessalonica here. And when they say that they are defying Caesar's decrees and that they're proclaiming another king, I believe that this has very significant implications that we need to understand in order to really know what's going on in this text and how serious it actually is. And the first thing we need to do is to remember that this passage, this moment, this little dust up between Paul and his friends and, and, and the people, it's, it's in a city called Thessalonica which is a city in Greece. I think we call it Thessalonica today, but uh, in the ancient world, I believe it was Thessalonica. And uh, archeologists have found that ancient Thessalonica was a hotbed for worshiping Caesar as a god. Now, this is something that happened throughout much of the Roman Empire. Uh, the emperor was divinized. He was seen as god-like or in some way a god. Um, and this was going on throughout the entire empire, but different cities, you know, as a way of kind of sucking up to the emperor in order to maybe get more resources for your city or get more attention from Rome, uh, they would try to um, maybe outdo each other a little bit in terms of how much they honored the emperor. And and what we find is that Thessalonica, um, they, they went as far as issuing a coin with Caesar's face on it that had the word theos, which means God on it. Rome had a practice of requiring citizens to to say loyalty oaths. You would pledge a loyalty oath to Caesar. For example, one loyalty oath that we have found uh, that was given to Caesar Augustus, which this would have been before our passage today. This is around when Jesus was young. Um, So to Caesar Augustus, this required people to say this. They would have to swear by Zeus, Earth, Sun, all the gods and goddesses, and Augustus himself, that they would be, quote, favorably disposed towards Augustus and his descendants, sparing neither my body nor my soul nor my life nor my children, but will report anything heard, plotted, or done against the emperor. This is how serious they were about loyalty to Caesar. And what it means is that if you are required to report anything you hear against the emperor, even if it's a danger to your children, it says this, it goes on, failure to do so would result in a curse coming, quote, upon myself, my body, my children, and all my family, total destruction to the end of my line. That's what you're saying must happen if you fail to do, to meet the requirements of this oath. 
uh, destruction to the end of your line. Now, you and I hear this today and we think it's funny. Who would believe this stuff, right? If you're a peasant merchant in the ancient Roman world, you better believe you believe this stuff. Imagine the fear that you walk around with all the time, knowing that if you mess up or if you're connected to somebody that, that messes up, what might happen to you and your family? And so if you're just trying to make a living running your little shop in the market, selling your olives or your grapes or whatever you're doing, and these guys come around and they start saying there's another king other than Caesar, that they follow a different king. You know what you're going to do? You're going to say, get as far away from me and my family as possible. That's what you'd say. And don't come back. These guys are nothing but trouble. I mean, surely the gods are on the side of Rome. Every single piece of propaganda was shouting at you your entire life from the day you were born. This is the ocean that you swim in. And who can, who can deny it? The, the greatest empire the world has ever seen it stretches as far as the known world is. Surely the gods are on the side of Rome. Which means that if I'm not on the side of Rome, then I'm on the wrong side. Now, not long before these events that we read about in Acts 17 the emperor Claudius issued a decree. And this decree forbid anyone from cooperating with Jewish rebels. Now remember, the early Christian movement was comprised almost entirely of Jews, and so for an outsider looking in, they would have just been another Jewish movement. And, and so it's very possible that the early Christians would have been lumped in with Jewish rebels. And so the accusations against Paul in Acts 17 echo the, the words of this decree. And it says, anyone who is found working with these rebels, Emperor Claudius says this, he says, I will by all means take vengeance on them. And so this is very serious here. One historian named Bruce Winter suggests that that decree may be the very decree they're talking about in Acts 17, verse 7, when they claim that they are defying Caesar's decrees. It's possible that they're talking about that one. That's the specific thing that they're, that they're doing, that they're defying, or at least one of them. So, I want to return to the earlier question here. Were the charges against these Christians true? Were they breaking Roman law? Were they guilty of treason? Would they hold up in court? Or were they simply distortions of the truth designed by their enemies to get them in trouble? Well, it seems to me that in this instance at least, the mob was telling the truth. These Christians were claiming that there is another king. In doing so, they were breaking multiple decrees breaking the loyalty oaths, putting themselves in danger, and maybe those near them. And I say all of this, I give us all of this historical context to this passage because it brings us to an important point. Today, when we sing songs uh, that talk about Jesus as our king, we just sang it, the Lord is king over everything, we say, God reigns, let the earth be glad. When we talk about Jesus as our king, Jesus as our Lord, 
it seems to me that we have a rather spiritualized understanding of what that means. So for us, claiming Jesus as king, it's almost metaphorical. I mean, we don't have a king here, right? We're a democracy. We don't have a king in America. And so what does it exactly mean for us to say that Jesus is our king? One thing seems clear to me. When millions of American citizens gather every Sunday morning and sing about how Jesus is their king, nobody at the White House gets nervous. Nobody, the Department of Homeland Security is not, like, keeping tabs on Christians. In fact, many presidents use Christian language as a matter of strategy, don't they? We are in a world where it is perfectly natural for many of us to claim Jesus as our king on Sunday and to say the Pledge of Allegiance on Monday. That doesn't seem weird to anybody. Now, my point is simply this. Whatever it is we usually mean today when we say Jesus is our king, one thing's clear. When we say those words, we don't mean it politically. It's not, politi- it's not, it's not referring to human, to the way that we organize and govern our nations today or ourselves today. That's not what we're referring to. It, it, it's, it doesn't have a political connotation to it today when we say Jesus is Lord. So I, that, that's one observation. However, here's another observation. It seems to me that when the early Christians said those things, that is precisely how it was heard, as we see in Acts 17. And, and notice something. These early Christians, when they were accused of treason, essentially, uh, they did not respond by saying, oh, no, you've misunderstood. When I say Jesus is my king, I mean he's king in my heart. Like in a kind of spiritual, private kind of way. But we all know like religion is just kind of your, your own private thing. It's just like my opinion. And so you don't need to worry about it. That's not what they said. Let me show you what they did. Now remember, our passage takes place in Thessalonica. And one of the cool things about the book of Acts is you can see Paul going around to these cities. And then you can go later in the New Testament and you can read his letters that he wrote to those places. And so it's like you're kind of getting the insider scoop on what they're talking about. And so Paul's in Thessalonica here, and then he has two letters to the Christians in Thessalonica that we can go and read, and we can see what were they talking about. And so when you go and you do that, and you start reading First and Second Thessalonians, it gives us more context to maybe understand what's going on in this moment in Acts 17. And listen, all of Paul's letters, of all his letters, Thessalonians is particularly packed with language that would have been political sounding. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. It said, Paul writes, while people are saying peace and safety, now in ours, it's, there's uh, quotation marks around peace and safety. We'll come back to that. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman so they will not escape. Okay, those words, peace and safety, those are important. Why are those in quotes? Uh, Because Paul was quoting something. And what he was quoting was actually a a really common political slogan in the Roman Empire. And we found peace and safety to be something of a mantra that was plastered all over the place in ancient Rome. In fact, uh, we found it in inscriptions. We've uncovered this giant statue of the general Pompey. And it says, peace and safety, pax and securitas in Latin, everywhere you looked. This is what Rome promises you. You want peace and you want safety? We can provide that. We just require one thing in return. 
your loyalty, your loyalty to Rome, your undying, undivided loyalty to Caesar. Here, take this oath. Peace and safety will be yours. But Paul takes that phrase and he says, well, people are saying peace and safety. Guess what's going to happen to them? In other words, they're putting, they're putting their hopes for peace and safety in the wrong things. One scholar analyzed the Thessalonian letters and he found a high number of words that Paul uses that are identical to the words that were used in various Roman propaganda uh, imperial propaganda, uh, inscriptions, letters, pronouncements, whatever. And so what they would do, they would use words like hope, joy, peace, safety, savior, gospel. The Romans would use all these words and apply it to Caesar. Caesar's the savior. Caesar's the one who brings the good news. Caesar's the one who brings you hope, joy, and peace. Paul takes those words and he uses them in reference to Jesus. And so here's what we're finding. It's this. Look, for the early Christians, the gospel was political. We just need to establish that fact. It was a lot of things. It was at least in part political. When they said Jesus is Lord, again, it meant a lot of things, but at least something that it meant was Caesar is not. Caesar is a pretender to the throne. He is not the supreme Lord over the entire world. There's another Lord, and his name is Jesus. For us, things that are spiritual, things that are religious, are considered private, personal experiences. They are almost on the realm of opinion, things that you are to keep to yourself but have no place out in the public square, okay? Listen, this way of thinking about faith is a modern innovation uh, that would have made absolutely no sense to ancient people. They would not have been able to differentiate like we do today. For the early Christians, their faith was not a matter of inner personal experience or conviction. It would have been that, but it would not have only been that. They would not have been able to separate the two. Their faith was simply the logical reaction to an event that had occurred, namely the resurrection of Jesus. Let me put it like this. If on the way to church today, I saw an elephant walking down Beaver Avenue. I would come here and I would say to you all, guys, I saw an elephant on the way to church. And it would not make sense for you to respond by saying, well, I'm sure that experience was real for you, Phil, but let's keep matters of opinion to ourselves." <clears throat> that would not be an appropriate response to what I said. You said, well, you would say, well, did you get a video or something, you know? But listen, that confused feeling that I would feel if you said that to me after telling you that I seen an elephant, that feeling is how the early Christians would probably feel if they were to come here today and hear how many of us talk about faith. They would say, what do you mean personal opinion? Like, what? We're talking about something that happened. It's not an opinion. And it changes everything. It's news. It's good news. What is news? News is simply telling people about stuff that happened, right? News, I mean, we now know that can be interpreted, but ideally news is simply proclaiming what happened. That's what we do when we share news. So 
our ability to make faith like a private thing is something that has developed over the course of history in the Western world. Hasn't always been like that, and quite frankly, I'm not sure we're right. But here's the point of all of this. Jesus as Lord is not a private opinion. It is a public fact. When you say that, you are not stating an opinion or a value. You are stating a reality. And when the early Christians said it, they were making a statement that had, well, for the ancient people at least, very political connotations. That's what they would have heard, and that's what they did here. You would say that, and you say, oh, okay, so, you, so you're defying Caesar's decrees then, are you? Now, when I say that the gospel is political, I also want you to know what I don't mean. I do not mean that it is partisan. Partisan, that's where you advocate for a particular party or candidate. That's not what the early Christians were doing. The gospel is political but not partisan. And it's hard for us to think about these two separately because they've kind of merged into just one thing. I think for us in our culture, political has, politics, I mean, that's ultimately about how to, how to govern and live together, right? Um, but it's not necessarily about which political party are you going to vote for? When the Christians in Acts were proclaiming a political message, they were not campaigning for a candidate. They weren't forming political coalitions. They weren't posting political memes. They, they, were, they were not doing the things that we generally tend to think of as being political actions. They were making political statements, but they had no intention of overthrowing Caesar. They were not plotting a military coup or a political coup. In fact, This is where the mob was wrong. If the mob was right that they were defying Caesar's decrees, what they were wrong about is if they therefore thought that they were planning a coup. That's not what the early Christians were doing, was it? They were not going to overthrow the current regime or somehow get power for themselves. That's not what they were trying to do. In fact, what does Peter tell them to do? Peter says, honor the emperor. Peter will write that later on in the New Testament. Listen, their political language was referring to an entirely different kingdom. They weren't talking about how to make Roman politics better. They were saying there is a kingdom that we serve that's higher than Rome. Now, there's no debate here that God's kingdom was their first home and everything else was a different, distant second. You know, when I, when I first moved to Des Moines, it was 2019, we walked right into the teeth of the campaign season here in Des Moines. And if you've lived in Des Moines for a while, you may have forgotten, it ain't like this everywhere else. Like, this is kind of a unique situation we got going here in Iowa, you know? I know that we, I don't know, somebody messed up the caucuses last time, so I don't know what it's going to be like this next one, but it's probably still going to be kind of weird. So we walked in here, I mean, I'm telling you, like, it's not like this everywhere else. NPR is set up at Smoky Row, (laughs) you know? Like, every weekend, you got Pete, or you got Bernie, or you got Elizabeth. Like, they're all here. It ain't like that everywhere. And I I think that what this means is that, actually, Des Moines has something unique going on as far as politics goes, at least for, like, a a Midwestern city, you know? Like, we, we are maybe more political in some ways than many places that you could go. And so, in a way, it's even more important for us as Des Moines natives to, or Des Moines citizens to think about this. What do you call someone from Des Moines, by the way? Des Moinesian? I haven't figured that out yet. Somebody tell me. 
So shortly after we moved in 2019, you, you had the election going on and everything, it, but then two things happened as well. You had COVID, then you had the death of George Floyd, which of course became very political things in and of themselves. They got politicized, if you will. I don't know how a virus and somebody's dying can get politicized, but we managed to pull it off, didn't we? And, and I looked around and it became rather clear, oh, Christians are very political, aren't we? But maybe not quite in the early church way. Like maybe we're more political in the partisan way than our ancient forebearers were. I have so many stories that I could tell, <laughs> some of them nightmares, um, and I won't because, frankly, I wasn't very, I didn't lead very well all the time in that season either. I mean, who did? But the point that became abundantly clear for me was that we don't know how to be political in the way Christians should be political, I think. This is something in our discipleship, in our theology, that we need to work on, you know? Like, there's a hole here. And today, I'm not giving us very many good answers. I'm really more asking questions. I'm really more just trying to illuminate the text and what's going on there and just kind of throwing that bomb out there and then walking away. Maybe we'll come back later in the series and talk more about what it means to be political as a Christian, but I'm waiting to see what kind of emails I get this week before I decide whether or not I want to do that. <laughs> it's now been four years since we moved, which means that another political cycle is revving up here in Iowa, and this one may be even crazier than before. Who knows? And so it's time for us to ask ourselves, who is our king? I think it is urgent for the church. Listen, we need to reclaim the politics of Jesus. Following Jesus will put you at odds with any political party at some point. I haven't found a party that based its teachings on loving your enemy yet. I haven't seen it. If you find yourself happily at home in one political party, I'm happy to be wrong, but I think you might be missing something. Here's my, this is the closest I'm going to get to giving just a straight up opinion of mine today, all right? I think Christians need to embrace the notion of being a little more politically homeless. I think that that is part of what it means. I think we need to embrace being politically homeless a little more. I'm not saying political withdrawal. I'm not saying being apolitical. I'm just saying acknowledging the fact that we, we don't fit. We don't quite fit. When it comes to big questions about what's best for humans, I'm not sure that we quite fit. Now, you're going to find things that you like here, and you're going to find things that you like there, and things that line up here and there, but, I mean, I have yet to find a, um, a man-made political party that just gets it, just nails it, you know? Our king says to love our enemies. He says that the last are first. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, his way has very little to do with the ways of this world. 
And so as we approach another political election, I'm not saying don't participate. I'm saying this, do politics from above, not below. Do politics from above, not below. Listen, doing politics from above means that you bring the values of the kingdom of God to bear on your politics, not the other way around. Participating from below means you get sucked into the madness, and pretty soon we see some of the stuff that, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, maybe this is fake news, I'm not sure, but apparently Russians made memes targeting Christians to mess up our elections, and it kind of worked. That's getting sucked into politics from below. Politics from above says the principles of God's kingdom are the non-negotiables in my life. Politics from below says, well, uh, come on, you know how things are in the real world, though. I mean, we can't, we can't, like, your faith, that's nice, but we got to deal with the real world here. Politics from above says, you know what the real world is? This ain't it. Politics from above says we're called to an entirely alternative kingdom. However, that kingdom calls us to love this one too. I think that politics is the new religion in our culture. And what I mean is this, we are irreducibly religious creatures. We have to worship. We have to, to reach for transcendence one way or another. The most hardened atheist, I'll bet you I can find a way they do it. Okay, we all do it in one way or another. We seek transcendence. And um, as we have kind of lived into a more and more secular age and where religion kind of disappears from the public sphere, by the way, not necessarily a bad thing all the time, uh, but as that's been the case, it has, the void has to be filled by something. And I think in a lot of ways, politics has become our religion. Um, politics is where we turn for hope. There's an eschatology to politics. That's a theological term dealing with like the culmination of things. The, where's everything headed? Where's, it, where's, uh, where's history going? That's eschatology. And so when you hear candidates talk about the hope and the change that they're going to bring or how um, things are going to become great again or whatever the case, this is, you can think of it if you... If you listen to it with theological ears on, you will hear a lot of eschatological language going on. Uh, politics promises us savior, Messiah figures. It is the de facto religion of America, and you can see it in people's responses when it gets meddled with. They have a religious sort of response often. And so I'm saying this. Let's love our country. Let's love the people in our country and in other countries as well. But let's have one name on our lips. Let's remember that we belong to a kingdom that is different than this one. And let's remember that brothers and sisters in Christ that are part in other countries, we actually have more in common with them than we do with our neighbor next door. Because we are followers of Jesus. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so let's try to do politics from above. I don't know what that looks like, and there's a thousand questions about how that trickles down. And here, personally, you're going to go vote, you know, and we're all going to, people here are going to vote different ways, and I'm not going to issue judge on, judgment on any, anything. All I care about is are we doing due diligence here and asking ourselves first, what does the kingdom of God mean for my life in this? That's all I'm saying. And so... Let's commit to that. 
as we continue on in this election season. Let's remember the early Christians, they had the audacity to say that there is another king and he's our king, he's the real king, that Caesar is a pretender to the throne. And let's not bow our knee to anyone other than him. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, when I say those words, they roll off my tongue real easy. Help me to pause now. Let Help us to pause now and remember what it meant 2,000 years ago. What it meant is going to jail. What it meant was being accused of treason. Because they're declaring, they were declaring that you are the supreme ruler and Lord over all. That it's not a metaphor. That it's just because we don't see you right now doesn't mean that it's no less real. But Lord, that we are actually a nation unto ourselves. We are a kingdom and you are the king. And so today, I ask that we could reaffirm our allegiance to you. Lord, that we could, um, I don't know, walk this, tri- this difficult line. Obviously, living in a democratic republic is a lot different than living in the Roman Empire. Um, and yet, Lord, I still think that there are powers and principalities that work in this world, and you call us to be discerning. And so help us to do that. Help us to love you above all else. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.